Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. According to the National Missing Persons Coordination Centre, approximately 35,000 Australians are reported missing every year. That's one person every 15 minutes. More than 95% of these people are found within a week, and then 99.5% of all missing persons are eventually found. But what happened to the more than 1,600 people still missing in Australia and have been missing long term? We will discuss some of these cases from my hometown this week on Mysteriously Listed. Number four. Leanne Goodall, Robin Hickey and Amanda Robinson. In December 1978, 20-year-old Leanne Beth Goodall was excited on where her life was headed. She was due to start a course at Newcastle Technical College early in the new year. She wanted her New Year celebrations to be something special to mark the new direction in life and had plans with some friends to travel to Sydney. Leanne didn't have a car and relied on hitchhiking to get to her destinations, but her brother insisted that she didn't on this occasion. He offered to drive her to the train station and pay her ticket, which she reluctantly accepted. On December 30th, 1978, Leanne's brother said his goodbye at Musselbrook train station. We know that Leanne got as far as Newcastle as she would be seen that night at the Star Hotel, which was a popular night spot in the area. She would never be seen again. Leanne's case was dismissed as a runaway case at the time. She never had a detective assigned, and her case went cold within the year. Four months later, on April 7, 1979, 18-year-old dental nurse Robin Hickey had arranged to meet a friend at the Belmont Hotel a pub within walking distance from her home. She said goodbye to her family and left at 7.15pm. She was last seen by passing motorists walking on the Pacific Highway. Robin would never make it to her destination. Police would also dismiss Robin's disappearance as a runaway case and failed to follow up at the family's request. So much so, in fact, that only two statements from witnesses were ever taken. And then, only two weeks later, April 21st, 1979, 
14-year-old Amanda Robinson was eagerly awaiting her school dance. The 8th grade student at Gateshead High School had been trying to convince her mother Anne to still let her go. Anne had to work that night and only agreed to let her daughter go because one of Amanda's friend's fathers agreed to pick her up. But then Amanda missed her ride home and was left to catch a bus, something that she wasn't too familiar in doing. But she hopped off the bus, waved goodbye to some school friends, and was last seen walking along Lake Road Swansea, just off the Pacific Highway, only 400 metres from her home, and only minutes from where Robin was last seen alive. Anne would get home from work the following morning and realised that her daughter had not returned home the night before. She immediately reported her daughter missing to the police. Unlike in other cases of small-town police, investigators knew that this case was out of their realm of experience and two detectives were sent from Sydney to investigate the disappearance. However, they would only remain on the case for two short weeks, and even though the same police jurisdiction were responsible for all three cases, no one linked Amanda's disappearance with that of Robin's and Leanne's, and they wouldn't for more than two decades. All three cases would again come to the public's attention in 2002, an inquest was arranged and a strike force, Strike Force Fennec, with a team of experienced detectives were assigned to reinvestigate the three case files. New tips led to the excavation of an area where the girls went missing. Two sealed wells were thoroughly searched, however nothing new was discovered. The inquest indicted Ivan Malat, as well as five other persons of interest, to give evidence. Malat, who was more commonly known as the Backpacker Killer, murdered at least seven people between 1989 and 1993 and buried their remains in Balangalo State Forest. His connection to the cases would be due to his knowledge of the area the girls went missing. Malat was a railway worker during the 1970s in the Newcastle region, and he was known to frequent the Star Hotel where Leanne was last seen and Robin's last known destination, the Belmont Hotel. Malat would refuse to answer questions, instead choosing to taunt the family with numerous letters hinting possible knowledge and laying blame with the families for their loved ones' disappearances. As at the time of this recording, a new strike force, Strike Force Arapiyama, has been assigned the cold cases of Leanne Goodall, Robin Hickey and Amanda Robertson, with the hopes that the final piece of the puzzle to close these long-term missing persons cases can be discovered and the families can have the answers they are so desperately have been waiting for. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Number three, Gordana Koteski. 16-year-old Gordana Koteski grew up in a strict Macedonian household in Gateshead, a suburb of Newcastle, New South Wales. Her parents, Peggy and Branko, didn't allow her and her siblings the freedom other children had at their age. So it was to her surprise when they gave her permission to go with her cousins to her first concert, a boys-to-men concert, and they gave her money to buy a new outfit to wear to the occasion. So on Thursday, November 24th, 1994, Gordana went shopping with some friends at Charlestown Square Shopping Centre. At 8.30pm, Gordana's friends offered to give her a ride to her aunt's home, but she refused as it was only a 10-minute walk. Now, this would be out of character for Gordana. She normally would hate walking alone, and considering it would be dark at this time, it would be unheard of. But she insisted that it wasn't far enough for her friends to drive out of their way. Personally, I would assume this newfound confidence would be due to her recent independence. On this walk, she would pass a group of four boys around her age on skateboards. They would call out to her, which she ignored. The boys would later report to the police that they also saw a white vehicle pass, drive to the end of the street before doing a U-turn and stopping. The boys, not receiving attention from Gudana, they continued on their way. Around this same time, an elderly resident was driving down the same street. She passed a white vehicle that she would later identify as a Toyota Hilux. Next to this vehicle, she saw two athletic young men who were half-facing each other. To her, it seemed like they were having an argument. They were moving their arms about in an animated fashion. Further along, she saw a girl matching the description of Gordana walking in the direction of the men and carrying a plastic bag. These witnesses would later be put under hypnosis by investigators, desperate to garner more information on the men and the vehicle, hoping they could at least get a partial licence plate number. But unfortunately, none of the witnesses could recall any more information than they had already given to police. At 8.45pm, Gordana's aunt and uncle were at home watching TV. They would hear a female screaming, no, followed by a longer, no, and then a muffled male voice that sounded like grunts of exertion. While this was unusual, it was a quiet street and nothing uneventful usually happened, 
it wasn't enough for the couple to go outside to investigate. Gordana's aunt only went to the window, and here she saw a white Toyota Hilux speeding off towards the nearby Pacific Highway. To Gordana's aunt and uncle at the time, they didn't think any more of it. By 9.30pm, and when Gordana still hadn't returned home, her aunt went outside. Here she found a torn plastic shopping bag, which contained a dress with a tag still on it, a pair of stockings, a lay-by receipt for a new swimsuit, and Gordana's wallet. A massive search of the surrounding bushland followed the disappearance, carried out by hundreds of volunteers and police, but they failed to find any trace of the teenager. For six weeks, 16 detectives were assigned to the case, interviewing anyone owning a Toyota Hilux. A reenactment was staged for the media and a mannequin was set up at the shopping centre that Gordana was visiting that night, dressed in the same clothes she had been wearing. A special hotline was available 24 hours a day to take any tips from potential witnesses. Gordana's case was originally included with the other cases mentioned in the first story today. However, she was quickly ruled out based on the eyewitness reports. There was no way she could have been a victim of Ivan Malat or any related serial killer. I personally agree with this due to the length of time between the disappearances. While it's not impossible, I do believe it's highly improbable and Gordana was most likely killed by someone she knew. There have been two persons of interest publicly named in this case. Two weeks prior to her disappearance, Gordana called her sister upset from work. She said that a former co-worker had been bothering her and following her. On one occasion, he had followed her into a change room. He was propositioning her and would not take no for an answer. She never named him and only referred to him to family and friends as the spook. She had told her sister that she already left one job because of his harassment and she was upset because she was considering leaving another. The spook has been described as being of Middle Eastern appearance and aged in his early 20s. He was often seen in the company of a blonde, stereotypical surfer-looking man of a similar age. Interestingly, this would match the descriptions of the men with the Toyota Hilux seen on the day Gordana went missing. The second person of interest boasted to friends about knowing where Gordana's body was buried and was quoted as saying, she went through a lot before they finished her off. Corey Lovett was questioned by police in 1994. Lovett told police that he was in Newcastle, but he had two friends who would support his alibi for the time of the abduction. However, police would also question another friend of Lovett's who insisted he was in Taree, some two-hour drive away. When the case was reopened in 2002, police were unable to locate him to question him further, but publicly deem him no longer a person of interest.
An inquest was held in 2002, which determined that Gordana was murdered soon after her abduction by person or persons unknown. That her killer or killers were most likely inexperienced and the abduction unplanned due to the number of witnesses. That murder was not the intention, but it is believed that Gordana fought back against her attacker or attackers. The coroner determined the murder to be sexually motivated and her attacker had likely stalked Gordana in the weeks before her abduction. Unfortunately, it would be through the coronial inquest that it would be discovered that most of the evidence gathered in Gordana's case had been destroyed. But a partial fingerprint was found on the shopping bag left behind. However, due to the lack of resources and a backlog of evidence waiting to be forensically tested, the bag would not be tested until 2009. There was no match. The fingerprint was added to the National Automated Fingerprint Identification System for future testing. Unlike DNA, fingerprints needed to be manually matched, and each day up to 200 new fingerprints are added to the database. And every evening, these fingerprints are checked against others held, Any potential matches are then marked to be manually checked by a forensic pathologist. But this number could be in the hundreds. And due to the lack of resources and the risk of human error, there is a potential that possible matches are overlooked or missed. The most recent development in the case would come in 2018. A woman and her son came forward alleging a family member had taken Gordana. They alleged he molested several children previously and had a collection of child pornography. After Gordana's abduction, he spoke inappropriately about her appearance, stating his attraction to her and how she looked like his ex-girlfriend. Gordana's parents have never given up. They've consulted dozens of psychics and hired numerous private investigators. But it has taken its toll on the family. Branko lost his job and then he and Peggy divorced. However, they still get together every year to celebrate their daughter's birthday. Number 2. Liesl Smith Sandy Harvey and Storm Smith started their relationship young and had three children, three girls, in quick succession. However, Sandy struggled with motherhood and left Storm and the girls while they were still very young. The youngest of these, Liesl Smith, would be the closest to her father and the two were tightly bonded. Liesl was known for her love of horses. The family had several, and she was especially excited for the upcoming birth of a foal, something her family and friends would later state that she would not have missed for the world. Just after lunch on August 19, 2012, 23-year-old Liesl Smith kissed her father and told him that she loved him, 
that she was going out for the afternoon, but reassured him that she would be home by five, in enough time to feed their horses before it was dark. She did not give any more information than that. She did not say where she was going and with whom. She jumped into her silver Honda Accord and left their Wallara home on New South Wales' central coast. For reasons we may never know, Liesl parked her car at Tugra train station, but she wasn't there to catch a train. She would park her car in the commuter parking lot. She would lock her car. The CCTV footage would show Liesl walk away from the train station towards a white utility vehicle with silver toolboxes on the back, which was parked on the side of the road. Liesl got into the vehicle... The driver did a U-turn and then drove out of sight. Liesl would be next spotted on CCTV footage at a Westfield shopping centre. It would show Liesl walking around aimlessly alone in the hours that would follow. This would be the last confirmed sighting of the young woman. When Liesl hadn't returned by the following afternoon, her father Storm started to get worried. He could not reach his daughter on her phone, and he had no idea where she was. It was out of character for her to be out of contact this long from her family. Storm reported her missing to police. But like we see so many times with missing young people, the police did not take this report seriously. They believed she had left on her own accord. However, they would ultimately put out an appeal to the horse industry. The idea here was that she would look at horse farms for work and board. Liesl's family posted missing persons adverts in horse magazines. Liesl's bank account would never be used and her phone would always be switched off since she left her home that Sunday afternoon. Two days after Liesl was last seen, a message comes through to Storm's phone from Liesl. It read, Fuck you. I cannot do this, and I'm not going to keep your secret anymore. Storm would immediately contact Liesl's phone, but it was switched off. Then a second message would be received from his daughter, reading, I'm really sorry, Dad. Please don't be angry. Again, Storm would try to call his daughter, but again her phone would be switched off. The case would quickly go cold. There would be several sightings at shopping centres throughout the central coast in the month that followed, and every lead would be followed up, but none would pan out with any new leads. And then, in April 2013... A property owned by a former partner of Liesel's, 42-year-old James Scott Church, would be searched. In the months that followed, all four of his properties, as well as his parents, would be searched by cadaver and firearm detection dogs, police divers, mounted police, and officers from the public order and riot squads. Items were seized, but no evidence could be found linking Church to Liesl's disappearance. However, it would be noted in the police report 
that Church owned a white utility vehicle with silver toolboxes on the back. The same vehicle that Liesl was spotted getting into on the day she disappeared. It would also be later revealed that Liesl was either pregnant or had recently miscarried a pregnancy to Church, and that she had told Church's current partner about the pregnancy. To the police, this escalated him to the top of their suspect list. The police held a press conference and stated that the case was now a homicide. Storm did not support this and demanded a reinvestigation. He believed he saw his daughter on TV in a crowd shot in northwest Queensland. Storm believed that Lisa was living somewhere in Mount Isa under an assumed name. Now, police did follow up on this, and the sighting was not her. And then in August 2013, police would again attend the property of James Church after reports of gunshots. Here they found Church with gunshot wounds to the stomach. He reported two men shot him and then left. He was treated for minor injuries at a local hospital and released the following day. The case would again go cold. Then seemingly out of the blue, the police would announce that they had made an arrest in the assumed murder of Liesl Smith. James Scott Church would be arrested and charged with her murder. Church would be adamant that he is innocent, that on the day she disappeared, she had called him, asking him to pick her up from the train station. He assumed her car had broken down, and that he left her at the Westfield shopping centre. For reasons that has baffled and frustrated Liesl's family and true crime commentators, Church received bail awaiting his murder trial in 2020. Liesl Smith was 23 years old at the time of her disappearance. She was last spotted on CCTV footage at Westfield Shopping Centre in Tugra, New South Wales. At the time of her disappearance, she was 163 centimetres tall of medium build with dyed blonde hair and brown eyes. If Liesl was still alive today, she would be 31 years old. Number 1. Zach Barnes 18-year-old Zach Barnes came from a big family who he was especially close to in particular with his mother. And although he did not have a relationship with his birth father, he considered his stepfather as his dad. By 2016, Zach was living with his parents in the New South Wales country town of Metford. He was working as an apprentice bricklayer. He was your typical guy's guy. He worked a trade. He loved beer. He played football and he also loved to gamble. It's something that worried his family. This gambling habit did result in him having debts and owing people money. But due to his close relationship with his family, Zach reached out to them for help for his gambling and alcohol addictions. 
Friday, November 11, 2016, Zach worked but finished early. He messaged his mother Karen, letting her know he was going to the local pub for lunch and a few drinks with a work colleague. During this lunch, Zach opened up to his colleague and told him he thought he was going to lose his job, that he had planned to go away for the weekend, clear his head and decide what he was going to do next. Now, this was not unusual for Zach. He was known to go away for days at a time alone and without notice. However, when Zach hadn't returned home Sunday evening and hadn't been in contact with his family, they started to worry. Karen contacted all his friends who told her that Zach had spent the weekend at a house in the nearby suburb of East Maitland. Karen was returning from a trip in Sydney, so she contacted another friend of Zach's to check up on him and make sure he was okay. This friend arrived at the East Maitland home. Later reports to the police would state that Zach seemed to be in good spirits throughout the weekend, but once this friend arrived, his demeanour changed. Zach seemed anxious and paranoid, insisting he needed to catch a train to visit his brother. Now it must be stated here that this friend knew the person Zach owed money to, but his family didn't and Zach was not aware that his mother had sent this friend to look for him on her request. Two friends who have never been named by the police offered to drive Zach to the train station. The trio stopped at a supermarket to purchase some cigarettes before continuing their journey. Employees at the store later reported to the police that Zach seemed again calm and in good spirits. However, it was during this trip at between 7.30 and 8.30pm at the intersection of Hassman Drive and Trip Close Thornton that Zach would become agitated again. He would insist of getting out of the vehicle. He would open the door and jump out, running into some nearby scrubland. Zach Barnes was never seen alive again. Police conducted a search by helicopter, along with ground searches by friends, family and state emergency services volunteers of the surrounding shrubland. No trace of Zach could ever be found. During the past three years, multiple searches have been undertaken, However, no new evidence has ever been located. There have been numerous sightings reported throughout Australia, although none of them have been Zach and all have been investigated by the police. Karen has been quite vocal of her distrust of the two men in the car with Zach the evening he went missing. She believes that they are not being honest in what happened at that intersection. These two friends are no longer assisting police with their inquiries. Theories into what happened to Zach range from drug-induced psychosis to witness protection to murder. No trace of Zach has ever been found. Zach Barnes was 18 years old at the time of his disappearance. He was 180 centimetres tall with brown hair and brown eyes. 
he was of medium build with several tattoos, the most recognisable being a VBB logo on his right calf. He was last seen at about 8pm on Sunday, November 13, 2016, at the intersection of Hasman Drive and Trip Close Thornton. He was last seen wearing a faded blue singlet, dark blue board shorts and work boots. If Zach Barnes is still alive today, he would be 21 years old. Do you have something you would like to see mysteriously listed? Do you have a particular theme that interests you? Message us on Facebook at Mysteriously Listed and on Twitter at Mysterious List. For a full list of sources used to bring you this week's episode, please see today's show notes. If you like what you have heard today, we would love for you to share this episode on your social media of choice. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we would appreciate it if you could leave a positive review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Research, additional writing and hosting is by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.